So many in our culture over a weekend in the fall engaged in that activity of watching football. Could be favorite college teams on a Saturday or professional teams often on a Sunday. And typically it'll be stated that when it comes to understanding the game of football, you have to realize that it's a game of inches. The point that's being made is is that little things within the game can make a big difference. If one team is trying to get that first down or to punch it in for the touchdown, but they come even one inch short of making that intended line, they have no points. They turn over the ball. The same could be true when all of the offense is poised and ready to go. And if one individual misses the snap count, false start, just a little thing sets them back five yards. Or if as they're going through the motions of preparing for the play and the quarterback is not aware of the play clock, inadvertently the ref blows the whistle delay of game, and they're set back instead of making progress. All I'm doing is using an analogy that's very common in our American culture, that little things make a big difference. We can talk about that in regard to things outside of football. Uh, There's a a little statement made for the benefit of children that a little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down. Or a little act of kindness can make such a big difference. We have news broadcasts that try to show how little actions on the part of insignificant people have such a big impact on the lives of many others. And so in the same way, there can be negative impacts Until in the late 1600s, physicians and families would sit and watch loved ones succumbing to some kind of disease. And some of it just had to do with a recognition that maybe there was something in the water, a form of bacteria that had such a deadly influence And for us to travel into certain countries, we are repeatedly warned, don't drink the water. Because what was discovered in the late 1600s is that little beastie in water called bacteria. In the same way, it can be dwelling in our homes, in our schools, even in our hospitals. Sometimes people will say the Best place to get sick is to go to the hospital because of all the variety of bacterial and viral infections that are concentrated within that area. And we can't minimize the importance of the sterile techniques of individuals not only doing the procedures but also preparing the places for them. Then in the late 1800s, 
they discovered something even worse than the bacteria, and that's viruses. And today, everybody panics when they hear maybe Ebola. Or to know that the most deadly forms of viruses are something that often are very common, such as influenza. And we don't really have a medication for it. We try to give vaccines to prevent it. And some of the research today shows that even certain forms of cancer are virally related. And so today we wrestle with little things that can do such harmful damage to very healthy individuals. And it wouldn't surprise me that some of the things that cause even the most knowledgeable and skilled physicians today to scratch their heads and say, I'm not really sure what's going on, that we might discover something even more microscopic, even smaller than viruses that are causing some of the problems that people wrestle with. Little things can cause such hurtful damage. In the same way, as we go through life, that's true as well, and that's what Solomon is emphasizing for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. We know that the book of Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book, and it was given to us to provide us with a skill to live life successfully for our good, to bring glory to God and have what is for our well-being. And the issue that is addressed in the book of Ecclesiastes is that fundamental issue that's so relevant and important for every human being. I want to have meaning, purpose, satisfaction, and fulfillment in my life. And Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes says, here is where that fulfillment, that satisfaction is found. His premise is you won't find it by an occupation with temporal things. That temporal things will always leave individuals empty and pursuing something more. And in chapters 1 through 6, he develops that theme by showing that even today there's nothing new under the sun. That human beings still have the same activities that they pursue to try to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life, but still crave more because they're left empty. And then in chapters 7 through 12, he brings forth the teachings or the deductions from that theme and what is relevant for us to understand. And that's where we find ourselves. And two key things to understand in the deductions that Solomon makes. The first is that chapters 7 through 12 almost are a proverbial type of literature. In other words, what you read and what you find in this last half of the book of Ecclesiastes could have been included in the book of Proverbs. You have pithy little sayings where Solomon makes an analogy to drive home a point. And in that, there are things that we can learn from it. 
The second thing of importance for us to understand is that as Solomon brings forth the teachings or the deductions from the reality that you won't find ultimate fulfillment, satisfaction, meaning, and purpose in life in the things of this world, chapters 7 through 10 have an underlying theme throughout that is very similar to the book of Proverbs And that is what you and I need in life is wisdom. And wisdom has advantages to anything else that we might possess or have. And it provides us with a better way of addressing the issues and the problems that we face. And if you think of a book of only 12 chapters and a third of it, is devoted to saying, here's why wisdom is so important and essential. You and I ought to pay attention to the fact that we need wisdom. And what we learn is that that the wisdom that Solomon is telling us about, to know how to look at life, understand life, find my place in life, and the meaning and purpose for me in life, is to realize that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that this is the source, a focus on God and building your life on the foundation of God is what will give you the ultimate fulfillment and what is for your well-being in this world and even more importantly, that prepares you for when you stand before God and for eternity. The fear of the Lord is what is most essential. And so we find ourselves in this section where Solomon is talking about the value of wisdom and he states in verse 16 of chapter 9 that wisdom, while it is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. A wise wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. If a ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. Oh, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land." Now, if we look at these proverbial statements by Solomon, we say, well, what is it that kind of pulls them all together? And it would be the fact that wisdom is absolutely essential to know how to deal with the things you're going to see in life, the issues that arise before you, and to accomplish what is for your well-being and to bring benefit to others. And at the same time to remember Little things make a big difference. One sinner can destroy much good. 
Just like a dead fly can ruin something that is so beneficial, so foolishness is weightier than honor and wisdom. So with that in mind, Solomon tells us, we need to recognize that intimidation is not the way to really get things done and have the proper outlook on life. The words of the wise held in quietness, heard in quietness, are better than the shouting or the ranting of a ruler among fools. So what's the picture? Well, the ruler has the position of power. He has the place of authority. And so he begins to raise his voice and shout, this is the way it's going to be done. But it doesn't mean that wisdom is being generated by these expressions in the rant. Instead, he says, the words of the wise heard in quietness are far more effective, far more beneficial than all the ranting and raving that's done by the shouting of the ruler. One of the things that I've seen in my experience over years is the fact that often when people aren't convincing someone by a sound argument, they usually refer to raising their voice, thinking that if I say it a little louder, someone's going to be convinced. And I have sat and watched many debates where ears start turning red, where volume goes way up, and instead of the other person being convinced, what you have is the reality that more heat is being generated than light. Second thing that I tend to notice is that when people really don't know what they're talking about, they like to raise their voice thinking that somehow if I just intimidate the other individual, he'll cower, cave in, and I'll get my own way. But Solomon says something that has benefit and advantage to each individual is listening to the words of a wise man in quiet. If I go back to the book of Proverbs, also written by Solomon, in chapter 9 of Proverbs, he, he presents the options for us as human beings under the image of two women. And he says, the woman who is called wisdom is very refined. She has set her table lavishly and invites individuals to come in and feast. But the woman of folly is boisterous and loud and tries to coerce individuals by participating in things that seem enticing but really are to the individual's destruction. Stolen water is sweet, etc. The words of the wise in quietness ought to be heard. They're more beneficial than just because someone has a position of authority and knows how to intimidate. Even before I was a Christian, this was driven home to me as I was sitting in a national convention and listening to individuals squabble and debate on changes that ought to be made in um, our, the bylaws. And after a lot of heat and very little light was generated, one older individual just stood up, quietly presented his position 
And everyone else had to acknowledge, you know, that's hit the nail right on the head. And that's what needs to be done. And both sides who were in disagreement recognized this is the course of action that needs to be taken. He was an individual that had the wisdom to know how to take two opposing parties and to bring them together and have them set on the same purpose to accomplish the appropriate objective. The words of a wise man in quietness are better than the ranting or shouting of a fool. Wisdom is better than superior strength, than military might, but most individuals don't listen to the words of the wise. They don't follow the directions of wisdom, especially if they come from individuals that we don't think ought to be the sources of such wisdom. The poor man, as he described, in the city who had a way to tell them, here's how you can be delivered from this superior army. And the reality is that one sinner can bring about the destruction of much good. The second half of this proverbial statement is really made in verse 1 of chapter 10. Here's something you can see. Dead fly makes a perfumer's oil stink. You know, you can open the fridge up, and if you have an onion that's rotting or some leftover dish that's been left in there a little bit too long, you want to just shut the door of that fridge all over again. There might be a lot of good, nutritious food that is there, but, oh, that one foul-smelling, rotten uh, entity is detrimental to its all. So... What's his point? A little foolishness equal to the one sinner in verse 18 of chapter 9 can destroy much good is weightier than honor and wisdom. Just think of the business world and especially in our social savvy age. What do you always check when you're thinking about using a certain business or maybe going to a certain restaurant? You want to read the reviews. You want to read the comments. And what tends to have the greatest impact upon you? The negative. Negative comments are destructive. There was a pizza company that used to be the sponsor of the NFL. One negative statement. They're no longer there. Just a little thing has such a damaging impact. And business people know if there's a negative comment, I need to address it. I need to try to make it right. I need to correct it. I need to go way beyond in order to satisfy the customer because there will be a domino effect and it will impact others. 
I don't know how many times I can say in my life we were told this would be a good restaurant to go to or try this. And on that given occasion you go and maybe the food was good but the service was lousy. And somehow you have to be convinced to go try it again. Because that little thing called customer service makes such a big impact on the experience the individual has, no matter how good the product may be. Do you get the point? It's just a little lie. It's such a little thing. It seems so insignificant. Little things destroy much good. You understand why we are as a human race today? Because of a little thing called dietary activity brought damnation to the whole human race. The woman said, it looks good to eat. She gave it to Adam with her and he partook. And the day they ate, they died. Alienated from God. And so it is with every human being that comes into the world since Adam and Eve is born alienated from God, dead in their trespasses and sins. A little thing makes such a big difference. That being the case, we recognize that Solomon portrays for us the options that are there between the wise man and the foolish. And in the conduct of the wise man, it says the wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. And even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking and he demonstrates or he says to everyone that he is a fool. Well, first with the wise man, he says that the wise man is making the decisions to the right. Now again, think of the analogy. Think of the proverbial comparison. What is it biblically that we see in the right hand or to the right? not saying if you're left-handed, you know, that there is something detrimental about you. But when you and I meet someone in our culture, what do we typically do? You got it. You extend your right hand. You don't extend your left hand. Do you know why? Because most individuals are right-handed. The sword was on the left side. And if you're approaching me and I wanted to do you harm, instead of extending the right hand, I grasped the handle of the sword and we were engaged in conflict. And so the right hand or being directed to the right was a way of having protection and having power to deal with the issues or the problems that come. We've already seen in the book of Ecclesiastes, life is hard. You and I face almost insurmountable problems. And what is it we need? We need the discernment to know what is the right. 
what is the hand of power and protection so we're not harmed by the decision that we make? But it says the fool goes the opposite direction. He goes towards the left hand. What's implied? Instead of selecting what is for his own well-being, what will enable him to meet the difficulties that come, to have the resource available for his own protection, he makes the decisions that are self-destructive. So I'll go to another scripture verse which says, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end is death. It is a recognition that as you and I make our decisions in life, It has an impact upon us in what takes place. Ever want to redo a decision? Ever think, I wish I hadn't done that? The point is being made is that you and I face circumstances in life and we're not sure exactly what to do. We need the ability to discern through what's presented to know what is for our best good. And Solomon is saying, when it comes to the wise man, there's a minimization of the mistakes because he is making the decisions that are in the place of his well-being, protection, and might. But in contrast with the wise, he says the fool, on the other hand, directs himself to the left. I have to pause for a moment because you and I know that some people are smarter than others. And some people just seem that they have a propensity to make decisions that are self-destructive. And so we think, how foolish. I need to recognize that in the wisdom literature, the idea of being foolish or a fool is far different than just the intellectual capability of some individual. Notice what he said back in verse 18 of chapter 9. He says, but one what? Sinner can destroy much good. What did he say in verse 1? So a little foolishness. The recognition is that individuals are living their lives either with a a reality that God is involved in my daily life or I'm ignoring him. That is why it says in Psalm 14 and also in Psalm 53, I believe it is, in Psalm 53, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's not just saying, oh, well, he's talking only about atheists. When you read the Psalms, you recognize that there are people who live their lives as if God was irrelevant as if God has no place. And they continue to make their decisions on the fact that I'm not really concerned about what God may think or what consequences may come from it. No, in the wisdom literature, of which the book of Ecclesiastes is one, the contrast is made between the righteous and the wicked or the sinner. The contrast is made between the wise and the foolish. And it is much more than just not having the intellectual IQ to make the right decisions. But instead, it is the recognition that these are the individuals 
who say God's irrelevant. He has no real place. And so the fool is looked at someone who is not in a right relationship with God. And he makes his decisions that instead of being beneficial, prove to be harmful and self-destructive. Even to the end that if he's living for the things of this world, and he finds, now this is what life's all about. And he's just satisfied with the temporal. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 73, you know, there was a time when my walk with the Lord, I came close to stumbling because I looked upon the prosperity of the wicked and I said, they got everything going for them. But then I entered into the sanctuary of God and I recognized life is more than what people have in this world. It's an accountability to God. And his conclusion was God's put those individuals in the most slippery of all places because they are ushered into eternity with no awareness that what awaits them is the judgment of God. Remember how Jesus talked about the rich man who said, you know, I don't have a care in the world. I have barns. I'm building bigger barns. I have all the financial resources I need. And the Lord said, you fool, today your soul is required of you. Now who will they belong to? It is a realization that decisions are being made that are for one's personal harm and eternal damnation. And even when he walks down the road, he says to everyone he is a fool. Now, there's two ways that that phrase could be understood. One could be that this individual thinks, you know, because people don't agree with me, they're nuts. When he walks down the road, he says of the other people, they're fools. Or the other could be that the way he's living his life, he's demonstrating to everyone else, he really doesn't know how to put life together and he'll never be able to handle the difficulties and the problems that come. Personally, I take it the second. While on many occasions, the idea of the individual in his arrogant pride, thinking I'm the standard and because you're not doing it the way I want to do it, or you don't agree with me, you must be crazy. You're the fool. With that, as we face the, declar- the problems in life, he says in verse 4, if a ruler's temper arises against you, don't abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. You know, the ruler may be under stress. It may be that he doesn't agree with what his counselors are telling him to do. It may be that he has shouted among all the fools and no one's paying attention. It may be that this individual that is serving the ruler messed up. Whatever the occasion is, he says that if the ruler's temper rises up against you, don't respond by saying, okay, I quit. Don't give in. Have the composure that enables you to weather the storm and provide the kind of answer that appeases the anger of the ruler and produces what is not only beneficial for yourself but for others. 
Some of you I know are familiar with the story of Daniel and his three friends. And when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream and his other counselors couldn't give him the answer, Nebuchadnezzar, who was known for just going off, uh, flying off the handle at the least little thing, said, okay, let's kill all the wise men. And when they came to the home of Daniel, Daniel responded by saying, why is the king's command so urgent? I'll give him his answer. Now, that's an abbreviated, uh, written uh, information for us of a summation of what Daniel did and said. But this king, who would fly off the handle at the simplest thing, was appeased by the wisdom of Daniel. I can look at a godly man who kind of flew off the handle. His name was David. And there was an individual by the name of Nabal that didn't show him any kindness. And Daniel said, you know, that's enough. Or excuse me, David said, that's enough. And he took his sword and put it on his armor, got on his horse, and the 200 individuals that were with him were riding to Nabal's home. Guess who came out? A woman of great wisdom by the name of Abigail. And she had the words to stop David in his tracks and to cause him to recognize how detrimental and how foolish was his response. Because as it says here, don't say you quit, don't leave your position because keeping your cool, having the right response, composure allays great offenses. And so the wise know how to handle anger, difficult circumstances, and at the same time recognize that there's a lot of injustices, there is upside down things that are happening in every culture and society. So Solomon says there is an evil that I've seen under the sun. Now, for us, we look at the word evil and we think of it as some kind of moral um, problem. But this Hebrew word means a misfortune, a calamity. It means something that is difficult. And so it's a problem that results from an inappropriate action. It is the recognition that there is a distress and an affliction that is seen in a culture or society. And he says, this problem is the same as when the ruler makes a dumb decision. If the people who are in authority over you make a dumb decision, that has an impact on a lot of people. And there's the proverb for you to understand. When the culture or the society is turned upside down and fools are in the places of authority and when people who have been groomed for the position of leadership are in humble places, that culture, that society is going to suffer just as would be the case if the leader 
makes a bad decision. What's he saying? He's saying you need wisdom. And the wisdom that I'm talking about is the wisdom that comes from the Lord. Because you need to recognize as you go through life, one little mistake, one little thing can have such a big impact. There was a man who was called the friend of God. You know who I'm referring to? Abraham. He was promised an offspring and that it would be based on the miraculous working of God. That offspring is Isaac, whose descendant is Jacob. whose name was changed to Israel. But Abraham said, you know, I think God needs a little help. And so following the custom of the day, he had an offspring by a maid of his wife, Sarah, Ishmael. And in the same way, the problems with Jacob and Esau Deceptive little things. What's my point? You have an answer to the Israeli-Arab problem? It all started with a little thing. And the impact is still there today. And that's why you and I need to know little things make a big difference. And much more detrimental than some physical illness that you may suffer because of that little virus is the fact that one sinner can destroy much good. That little things that we think are so insignificant can have a profound impact upon us and individuals around us. And part of that is because we need to recognize God is not deceived, and God is not mocked. What you sow is what you'll reap. And the seed may be very little, but I can tell you you'll have a bountiful harvest. And that's why we need the wisdom that only God can give to us in order to face the real difficulties and problems in life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your truth. I thank you, Father, that you have given us something to direct our paths. Keep us from ever thinking that we are beyond needing help from you. And may we build our lives upon you as the sure foundation. May we keep our eyes upon you as we seek to make our decisions so that we will have that which is for our best good and for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.